you're listening to Soundplay, a radio show that features audio work produced by people in the Salem State community. We're your hosts. I'm Tanya Rodrigue, a professor in the English department. I'm Justin Nguyen, an English student here at SSU. Listen to those words coming from those SSU students all day. Soundplay. <laughs> Soundplay. Yeah, trademark. Trademark. Soundplay. The first story on today's episode is called 28. This is actually composed by one of our beloved faculty members here at Salem State. And I guess I'll just leave it up to her to introduce herself and her story. Hello, my name is Dr. Tiffany Gale Chenault and I'm a sociology professor at Salem State University. My current research interest involves running. And I definitely was not a runner. If I were to look at myself 20 years ago, I would never think I would be in a position of running and running a half marathon in every state. My journey of running started because of grief. I had lost my mother in 2011 from cancer. And so I was in a very bad place, a hurtful place, a mourning place that many people are when you lose someone that you love so dearly. And I was so hurt and in such a place of grief, I didn't even realize I was grieving. I like to tell people that I was just functionally functioning. So in 2013, a friend of mine asked me to be a part of her relay team, her running relay team for a five mile race. And because I was dysfunctional functioning, I said yes, because I had to be a team player. Well, long story short, that evolved into actually healing, to feeling my spirit again, to being able to grieve, which was started the first process. The second part of it was that as a sociologist, as I look and try to understand my social world, as I started to run, I realized that running is such a white space and I wanted to understand this culture that I knew nothing about. So I started on this journey. And what I want to talk to you all about is my state number 28, Florida. So as I'm traveling the country, trying to understand running and running culture and black women in these spaces, so many things have come up around race, gender, body, geography, place, community. So it's been quite an adventure. Right now I have four more states left. But what I would, what I've prepared for you now, it was a talk that I wanted to do for the moth, a nice five minutes to talk about adventure. So I'm going to talk to you about my state number 28 in my experience. It's 5 a.m., 68 degrees, it's dark, it's humid, and I'm in Seminole State Forest. It's pitch black, and the only light is coming from the tiki torches that are lighting my path, and there are bears, they're black bears. As I'm starting to run in the forest, I hear all kinds of sounds, and I'm wondering, are those bear sounds? Then I realize that I don't know what a bear sounds like, I mean, I think I know what a bear sounds like, but 
I don't know what a bear sounds like. I was told by the race director the day before the race that the black bears are friendly and really they're more afraid of people than people are of them and that they'll stay out of everyone's way. To me, a bear is a bear, period. And I wanted to know who are these people? As I continue to run in this race, daylight slowly starts to come. It's hard for me to gauge my surroundings because the tree line is an illusion to the distance and I couldn't quite gauge it. At one point, the path that we were in the forest that was white got narrow and narrower. We all end up running in a straight line behind each other. Somehow I got trapped in the middle. So you had to go fast because you didn't want to get trampled and there was nowhere to go on the side. And as I'm running and I'm, mid- I'm in the middle of the pack, I was going to my normal pace. I, I'm thinking I'm going like five, five miles, maybe six, because I'm running and there are roots and leaves and bushes and branches and dirt. And I'm bobbing and I'm weaving and I'm ducking. And I'm going through the forest. The path is curvy. I'm going up. I'm going down. I'm going up again. And when the past opened up, I was like, oh, I was so thankful. And I'm thinking, yeah, five, six miles. That's definitely what I did. I saw a sign. It said, mile one. I started to curse. I had 12.1 more miles of this to go. The fun had just begun. As I continue to run in the forest, there's what's called sugar sand that I encountered. Does anyone know what sugar sand is? I never heard of this before. It's a soft, refined sand, like quicksand. So when you step on it, you sink. I encountered this while I was running up an incline in the forest. So picture it. Now it's hot, there's no cover, I'm sweating, and now I'm going up an incline doing high knees because of the sugar sand. Once again, I started to curse because I was in this mess. So for my peace of mind, I started to think about my African-American ancestors who ran in the forest for freedom. They ran in the forest for survival, right? They ran in the forest to escape the hardships of slavery. And I thought about these folks and how they were able to use nature as a guide for medicines, as part of being surveyors. They knew how to navigate this space. This is a connection that I should have with nature, but I don't. At one point, I had looked up and there was no one in front of me. There was no one behind me. I wasn't sure which direction to go, but I kept running because I wasn't lost in the forest. I didn't think. So I kept running straight until I came to the crossroads in the forest. I didn't see any indicator as to which way to go. So I just stopped. I wasn't lost. I was fine. If no one came to get me, I had 20% of my cell phone, which I still hope I could get service. What seemed like several long minutes probably wasn't. I started to think about my life and how I could survive in the forest with the bears because the bears are more afraid of me than I am of them. I started thinking about how I can adapt. And then all of a sudden, I saw a runner pass by me. 
And I thought, I need to follow her. So I'm following her because she was going to get me out of the forest. Because at this point, I was done. So I'm running. I'm all happy. I'm going to get my way out of the forest. And then the unexpected happened. Bam! Just like that, I fell flat on my face. I cracked my cell phone. I, I was bruised. I was bleeding. I did the Reese Witherspoon Illegally Bond, the bend and snap. I got right back up. I patted myself down. Nothing was broken. I think everything was all good. And I had to get the heck out of the forest. I was done. This was the Masters of All-Terrain Race. This was one of two races in the entire state of Florida in July. This was my state 28 on my 50 state and 50 half marathon journey. Why July, you may ask? Well, on this journey, I always run in July to celebrate the passing of my mother. So if she could deal with cancer, I can deal with friendly bears, being in a forest, going through the woods, dealing with sugar sand for my survival, it would be okay. And I have more stories to tell about that. I hope you guys enjoyed that piece. Our next piece is a little bit different. This is a Everything is Alive piece from Abby. She actually created this in Professor Rodriguez's class, her digital writing class to be specific. She was responding to an assignment that asked students to create an episode that could be played on an already existing podcast. So she chose the podcast Everything is Alive. Without further ado, here's Abby's Everything is Alive piece. Let's begin with a little introduction of yourself, if you don't mind. Can you tell the listeners what you look like? My name is Henry. I'm an old, brown, chipped coffee mug. I'm short and chubby, but I hold a lot. My owner's Diane. I've lived in her cabinet next to the sink for about 20 years now. I'm not really sure when I'll get to retire, but I like my job. 20 years, that's impressive. Your owner must be really attached to you. I've had a few casualties in my time, but for the most part, I've been treated well. I'd say I'm definitely the go-to mug choice. You said casualties? What happened? Well, you know, I've been dropped. Luckily, I only got checked. Nothing too serious. I didn't need glue or anything. I'm just missing a piece of my rim, but Diane doesn't seem to mind. How do you feel towards Diane? We have a pretty good relationship, I'd say. It's definitely nice being used. Some of my friends in the cabinet haven't been used in years. They're in a pretty dark place, you know? I mean, I can't imagine not being used on a daily basis. The cabinet is a nice home and all, but spending every hour of every day there for years must be depressing. Can you describe what your day-to-day life is like? Well, I start off in the cabinet. Then Diane takes me out and we make our way to the coffee machine. I'm usually filled with about 8 ounces of coffee. Sometimes I'm needed for more. When Diane is finished, I usually get to hang out in the sink. It's a nice change up from the cabinet. I get to see my friends that live in other cabinets, like plates and bowls. It's nice getting to catch up with them. At the end of the day, when Diane gets back from work, she cleans me and then puts me home for the night. Do you ever wish you got a break from being used? You'd think I'd get annoyed from being used every single day, but I really don't mind. 
It's better to be used than be left in the dark cabinet feeling unwanted. I get to see the world. When was the last time you left Diane's house? Well, uh, I actually haven't left her house since she bought me. I mean, besides being in her backyard. Do you miss the outside world? I can't say that I do. It was a pretty traumatic experience out there for me. I wasn't handled very well. Before Diane came around and bought me, I was in a pretty bad place. Where were you? I was for sale at the Target in Salem. I lived on the bottom shelf. It was a really low time. Being so low to the ground, no one really noticed me, and I was never cleaned. When I did happen to get noticed, everyone thought I was ugly. I mean, I don't blame them. Brown isn't the best color, and no one really appreciated my chubbiness. Were you jealous of the other cups at the store? It definitely took a toll on me with all the other cups being admired and bought. I wish I had got more attention. I may be an ugly color, but I can still get the job done. In fact, I was bigger than most of the other cups. You'd think people would have wanted me more considering I held the most coffee. 12 ounces to be exact. People are crazy for their caffeine fix these days. What kind of thoughts did you have while you waited to be bought? Well, to be honest, I really questioned my purpose in life. I was made to hold coffee, but no one wanted me, not even the most addicted coffee drinkers. Cups around me were always being chosen. I was so jealous of them. Can you tell us about the day Diane found you? Diane came into my life at the perfect time. I was so fed up with everything that I'd made my way to the edge of the shelf and was about to jump. I guess that's when I caught Diane's eye. She grabbed me and saved my life. Were you happy that she found you? I'm so grateful for her. She turned my whole world around when she bought me that day. My life finally had a purpose, and I finally got to experience what it was like to be used. I think we'll wrap it up here with that happy ending. Thank you for sharing your story with our listeners. Hey, this is Dan Finnerty from the Dan Band. You're listening to WMWM 91.7, fucking Salem. Coffee Time has been a family-owned and operated bakery since 1978. They offer scratch-made pies and scones, and now through Thanksgiving, apple cider donuts and pumpkin cheesecake. Grab a fresh cup of coffee or real hot chocolate milk to go with your favorite treat. Coffee Time, setting the standard for homemade baked goods right here in Salem. Coffee Time, 96 Bridge Street, Route 1A in Salem. Thank you guys for listening to Abby's Everything's Alive piece. Our next piece that's coming up is coming from Cassie. She is a history major here at SSU, and she composed this piece for Margot Shea's public history class. The and bustle of the set was completely lost to the makeup table. Unlike the rest of the ABC set, neither seated man seemed to feel the pressure, the anxiety in the room. If this flopped, what would be the future of the whole network? They already worked on a shoestring budget. Mistakes had already happened. The ceiling had collapsed at one point. That didn't matter to the two men, perched on their makeup chairs. To them, this was just another television appearance albeit with their self-proclaimed worst enemies.
In their own heads, they were the only people in the world. They sat facing completely opposite directions. Gorvidal and William Buckley sat side by side in their makeup chairs, but these two men could not be further apart. Vidal sat facing the mirror, sat facing forward, as his makeup was rather liberally applied. All he could see of Buckley was the back of his head. Buckley sat with his back to his own reflection, and likely Vidal. Buckley's makeup job was done a bit more conservatively than his opponent's. The air was uncomfortable, creating a sort of invisible wall between the two men. The 1960s is considered to be a decade of political strife and turmoil. 1968 seems to be the climax of these political forces. 1968 was the year that both Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy were assassinated. America was at the height of the Vietnam War. The My Lai Massacre was that year. 1968 also happened to be an election year. In August, the Republican and Democratic parties would hold their respective national conventions to determine who would be their presidential candidate. All three national television networks at the time reported on these conventions, with NBC and CBS doing the typical gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage. ABC, which was the financially weakest of the three, would be shaking things up a little. They could only afford to do about an hour and a half, and that hour and a half was broken up into four different segments. One of those segments would be debates between William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal. These debates would shock the nation and make history out of an event that was, by all accounts, expected to fail. Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley were household names in the 1960s. Part of the reason they were picked for the debates was that they were already so well-known. ABC assumed that they would draw in more viewers. Vidal was the more liberal of the two, especially during the 1960s. He was a famous novelist, writing books like The City in the Pillar and My Red Breckenridge. Those names might not sound familiar now, but they caused shockwaves when they were published, as one focused around a homosexual relationship and the other focused around a trans woman. Buckley was extremely conservative, gaining his fame through God and Man at Yale, published almost solely to complain about the structure of Yale's teaching. This fame was only enhanced by his magazine, National Review his 1965 New York City mayoral run, and his PBS show, Firing Line. And now, on with the show. The first series of debates would be in Miami Beach, where the Republican National Convention was held that year. These debates would focus on the issues of the times and specifically focus on the issues of the conventions and their political parties. Vidal would accuse the Republican Party of being the party of greed, something Buckley denied. They discuss who they support as their own personal nominations, with Vidal calling Ronald Reagan an aging Hollywood juvenile actor. The main issues discussed were Vietnam and what America should and should not do while in Vietnam, how to handle race within the political system, and what the poor might do and how they might be treated. These issues, while relevant at the time, and perhaps now still, were not the reason that the debates would spark the American interest. Instead, it would be the insults each man hurled at each other. The very first debate, Buckley would remind the world that Vidal was the author of Myra Breckenridge in an attempt to discredit Vidal's political views. Buckley, without saying it, was asking how valid a man could be when he wrote about a trans woman and questioned gender roles. Vidal would simply throw it back at Buckley, saying he was the inspiration and model for Myra herself. When Vidal said he simply hadn't been listening to Buckley, Buckley would say Vidal hadn't been listening to anything in years. 
Buckley would outright say that anything complicated confused Vidal. These tit-for-tat, sort of catty debates would be put on hold at the end of the Republican National Convention. They would be picked back up with a much more fitting background in Chicago for the Democratic National Convention. These debates would take place in the midst of violent protests and riots in the city. These riots would be a topic of debate for Vidal and Buckley, with Vidal reminding Buckley and the watching world that allowance of peaceful assembly was mandated in the Constitution. Vietnam, and once again how to handle it, was brought into question. These issues, and each man's stance, would be overshadowed by the second-to-last debate. In the end, the second-to-last debate would seem to be the end of it all. What mattered was the overarching subtext of the debates. Each man was arguing what he thought a man could be. On air, it seemed that each man had simply had enough of the other and wouldn't tolerate the other any longer. The subject of Nazis was brought up, and Vidal directly states that the only sort of crypto-Nazi, meaning the only one that existed post-World War II, that he could think of was Buckley himself. Buckley responds the only way he seems capable of, and says, Now listen, you liberal, right yeah. stop calling here. me a crypto-Nazi. Let's, let's stop calling names you in and your let's goddamn get... face, and let's... you'll stay plastered. Strong words to say to a man in today's political climate, but even stronger to say on live television in 1968. With this, Vidal seems almost smug, almost as if he knew he had finally won the debate. Buckley had crossed the final line. There was one last debate after the whole debacle. The air of this debate was different. There was no back and forth bickering, no catchy one-liners from either man. Vidal would not accuse Buckley of always being to the right and always being in the wrong. The letter from Bobby Kennedy, a man who loathed Vidal and Vidal loathed, would not be brought up on air again. Neither man was willing to let sleeping dogs lie, though. They would, instead, continue to poke the giant and poke at each other. These debates would not end on screen, as both men were champions of the written word, and that would be the argument's new realm. Shortly after the debates, Buckley would write an article published in Esquire magazine entitled An Encounter with Gore Vidal. In this, he explores his interactions with Vidal and what they all mean. The article begins a bit oddly, as it begins with a critique of what initially seems to be a completely unrelated article. Buckley is criticizing this specific author for using queer slurs when referring to Buckley. The magazine that had published this article was one that had a queer slur in the title and even had gay personals in the back. Buckley is questioning what this author's specific logic was, as he used queer slurs as an attack but yet openly welcomed queer people. This logic is how Buckley attempts to shame Vidal. How could Vidal openly have issue with being called queer if he was openly gay and wrote about gay men and trans women? In this article, Buckley openly admits that this is not the first time he has called Vidal a queer, as he had written a telegram some years prior, after Vidal had appeared on television and criticized Buckley and the rest of his family. Buckley, in response, that the Buckleys did not need a pink queer giving them advice. This whole article is spent trying to deflect what happened and to allow Buckley to recover from such a public blunder without truly issuing an apology. Vidal would not be one to allow Buckley to get away quietly, though. Also in Esquire magazine, Vidal would publish his own piece, A Distasteful Encounter with William F. Buckley Jr. It was an attack piece from Vidal, who one can only imagine was furious when he read Buckley's initial article. In his own article, Vidal would make a critical error, though. 
who wrote about an anti-Semitic attack on a church done by the Buckley children. This was done simply because the pastor's wife had sold a home in the neighborhood to a Jewish family. While this was a true event and did actually occur, William F. Buckley himself was not there for the attack, and the way Vidal wrote it was vague enough to imply Buckley had been there. This would warrant a lawsuit for libel and slander from Buckley, but it would never see the inside of a courtroom. Vidal would countersue, or attempt to, as it was immediately denied. Buckley, in the end, would settle out of court and then immediately went on television to explain that he had, for once and for all, won the feud with Gore Vidal. Despite settling the lawsuit, Buckley would announce that he had won it. And for some decades after that, it did seem like Buckley had the last word. Buckley and Vidal would never write about each other again, at least while they were alive, and they certainly wouldn't ever be seen in public together again. But things would change when Buckley died in 2008. Vidal was still alive and very much had his wits about him. After his passing, Buckley would quickly be rolling in his grave, as his son would endorse Barack Obama for the presidency. The real kicker, though, was the alternative obituary that Vidal would write about his longtime foe. Anything that Buckley was hailed for in other obituaries was ripped apart and called into question. Vidal left no stone unturned. The feud, it seemed, was finally over and Vidal had won in the long game. Why else would someone say as his final goodbye to one of his few remaining contemporaries, R.I.P. W.F.B. in hell? This piece is from Lana Dadiego. She is a biology major here at Salem State. She actually composed this piece for Professor Rodrigue's audio storytelling class. And the assignment was to essentially talk about specific sounds that you hear coming out of Salem. She chose a pretty interesting one that actually says a lot about the infrastructure and just a lot of the character of Salem, Massachusetts. I hope you guys enjoy. Thank you. What you're hearing is an old 1855 radiator heater struggling to warm an old apartment building on Boston Street here in Salem, Mass. Some would find an almost 170-year-old house ancient and dated here in 2018. But in Salem, a house built in 1850 is actually pretty modern. The radiator heater wasn't even invented until 1855, but houses in Salem can date all the way back to 1635, when heating a home was nothing more than a fantasy. Salem, Massachusetts is in a crossroads between its rich colonial history and its up-and-coming cosmopolitan culture. Recently, the old 1638 house owned by a famous victim of the Salem witch trials, John Proctor, went up for sale. Refinished with new appliances, kitchen and floors, almost completely masking the fact that its owner was hanged for being a witch just 300 years before, complete with radiator heating. 
Salem State University Radio. They must pay us millions to stop broadcasting. WMWM Salem, 91.7 FM and WMWMonline.com. I didn't want to talk. She just sat with me. That was all I really needed. We got back. One day he called me out of the blue. And it's comforting to know that I always can count on him to have my back. She called me from time to time. I really didn't think I needed any help. It took me from being really depressed to feeling like somebody cared to give me some hope. Just that one text. Be there. Your call. Your presence. Your words. Your support. Be there and help save a life. Learn more about preventing suicide at VeteransCrisisLine.net. Hey guys, I think that'll be it from us today. Thank you guys so much for listening. I would like to thank everyone who is able to share their stories with us today. Um, I really enjoy the different perspectives and the variants of different kinds of stories we played today. I hope you guys had a good time, and I will see you in the next episode.